Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and today we're kicking off our third year of the show. Can you believe it? I can't. When I first started the Land of Desire in the summer of 2016, my goal was to make it six months. And then when the show began picking up steam, I stretched that goal out to one year. At this point, I fully expect to be podcasting from a moon base in 2070. In recognition of another podcast milestone, what better subject for today's show than the world's most indelible icon of celebration? Nestled in a corner of one of my favorite neighborhoods here in San Francisco is a bar called The Riddler. There's a lot of reasons to love The Riddler. It's entirely owned and operated by women, there's unlimited self-serve popcorn, and they'll make you a waffle out of tater tots. But what really drew me to the place was the drink menu. The Riddler focuses exclusively on champagne. As I sat there, munching as much popcorn as the human body is physically able to consume, I started to wonder about the world's fascination with champagne. What makes champagne so special anyway? Why do we associate it with rich people? Why do we associate it with parties? Why do we like to smash bottles of the stuff when a new ship is built? As you can all understand, I had to follow my curiosity by conducting multiple taste tests of champagne, stretching out over the course of a few weeks, all in the name of science and history, of course. I am nothing if not dedicated to my craft. But a few headaches later, I really started to dig into the science and the history of champagne, and what I learned surprised me. Researching this episode taught me a lot that I didn't know, and it busted a bunch of myths that I'd always believed. So, let's pop open a bottle, pour yourself a glass, because why not? It's almost the weekend. And let's explore the history of the world's most popular party drink. Champagne. If you were to quiz most people at a party to name a fact about champagne, the first thing they'd do is ask you politely but firmly to leave. But the second thing that they do is tell you that in order to be true, real deal champagne, the fizzy drink in your glass must come from a specific, tightly controlled region of France. Anything else is just sparkling wine. Most of you listening at home have probably heard that before. But have you ever stopped to think about just where that region is? Locating champagne on a map isn't just another weird activity to ask guests to do at parties. It's the key to understanding what champagne is, how it's made, and what makes it so special. So let's pop on our Carmen Sandiego hat and travel. There are two critical things to understand about the region of Champagne. Just like the bottle you've had stuck in the side of your fridge door for a special occasion, Champagne is cold and in a vulnerable location. Champagne is a high-altitude region. The mean temperature in July is 18 degrees Celsius, or 66 degrees Fahrenheit, which is exactly the same as San Francisco. 
Since I wrote this script while looking outside at a cold, foggy night while warming up some French onion soup, it's like I'm already there in my mind. I'm sharing this weather report for a reason, because the climate is very important to this story. Champagne is also smack dab at the halfway mark between Paris and the border of Germany. For anyone who has ever taken a history class or heard a prior episode of this show, your antenna probably went up right now, and for good reason. Champagne has a near constant history of invasions. Attila the Hun, Otto von Bismarck, Kaiser Wilhelm, Adolf Hitler. If there was someone hell-bent on conquering Paris, they were going to pass through Champagne to do it. If you had a time travel machine, Champagne is not the place to use it. The odds are pretty high that you'd land someone you didn't want to be. On the other hand, there's a reason everyone wanted to conquer it. During those rare periods of peace, Champagne was at the crossroads of Europe's two biggest trade routes. One carried goods to and from the German kingdoms, the other continued down to the Mediterranean. Champagne was the center of commerce, and history tells of enormous trade fairs that drew all of Europe to the area for weeks on end. For good or for bad, Champagne was all up in the middle of Europe's business. And just like the weather report, this will be key. There's a term in winemaking which is worth a detour. And it's a word which, despite my years in France and my subsequent years on Duolingo, I still struggle to pronounce. So please be kind, French-speaking listeners. I want to talk about terroir. Terroir is a tricky word, both to pronounce and to understand. And depending on whether you're speaking to a French person, it might be defined differently. Terroir is, at its core, the notion of a wine's sense of place. Terroir can reflect the climate in which wine grapes are grown, the soil in which the grapes are planted, certain gusts of wind one part of the vineyard may receive compared to another, even whether or not one corner of the vineyard gets more bees than a different corner. Terroir is a characteristic of old world wines. It's meant to refer to the kinds of qualities that wines take on when they're grown in a place which has grown wine for hundreds if not thousands of years. But where terroir gets complicated is when humans step in. Most non-French people don't consider winemaking part of a wine's terroir. In New World winemaking, terroir usually doesn't include things like the time of year the grapes were harvested or what kind of container the wine was aged in. But in Old World wine country, human intervention is part of the story. If a region's tradition of always picking grapes in June and aging them in oak barrels is 5,000 years old, perhaps detecting that early harvest and oak aging in the wine is actually part of a wine's traditional terroir. Terroir is important. It's one of the terms tossed about by very serious wine people, the kinds of people whose reviews determine whether you'll be paying the rent that year if you're a wine brewer. Even if you don't pay attention to a wine's terroir, even if you think it's just an industry buzzword, industry buzzwords can make or break a winemaker's entire business. 
Knowing what terroir means is also important when you're confronted with a weird person at a party asking you questions about champagne. These days, a wine which claims to express terroir will sell more bottles for more money. It's trendy to label one's wine non-interventionist, as in, I've done nothing that would prevent the terroir of my grapes from shining through in the wine. Terroir isn't just a word. It's a summary of the world's ideas about good wine. To be a great wine, the wine should be authentic. And to be authentic, it should have terroir. This is the line of thinking that dominates every serious guide to wine, which has driven the wine industries of places like Burgundy and Bordeaux. This is the 21st century's value system distilled down to a single phrase. And the terroir of Champagne? This is the reason for my detour. What sets Champagne and its famous bubbling beverage apart from all the other wines is this. The terroir of Champagne? is that it has no terroir. Here's a 30-second summary of how to make wine. Stomp a bunch of grapes. Add yeast. Give the yeast time to convert the sugar from the grape juice into alcohol. Filter the liquid. Remove the little bits of sediment, grape skins, stems, leaves, so on. And then let everything age for a while until the flavors are fully developed. Then stick a cork in the thing. This process has been fundamentally unchanged for thousands of years, and even an ancient Roman would understand what I just said to you. But in Champagne, things work a little differently. When winter starts early and lasts forever, the growing season is short. In Champagne, Ancient growers begin harvesting their grapes as late as possible, ensuring that the grapes are plump and full of sugar. These growers crushed their grapes and they stored them away in their underground caves before winter could set in. As the temperature cooled, so did the yeast bubbling away in the grape juices, until eventually the yeast stopped working altogether. All through the cold winter, the grape juices and yeast sat in the cellars, doing nothing, basically hibernating, until the arrival of the Montée de la Sève, or the rising of the sap, when the springtime air grew warm enough that the yeast woke up and went back to work. It was during this second fermentation that the yeast could finally finish converting the sugars to alcohol, a process which produces a very important byproduct, carbon dioxide, or as we know it, bubbles. Ancient growers hated the bubbles and they considered them a flaw. And historical winemakers like Dom Perignon spent most of their lives trying to keep bubbles out of their wine. For the most part, however, it wasn't too troublesome because wine was stored in oak casks, like the kind the fat friar would drink from in an old Robin Hood story. Oak is porous enough that the carbon dioxide could just dissolve out into the air invisibly. And it was this lovely, drinkable, often pink or red wine, free of bubbles, which ancient growers poured into their casks and hauled out of their cellars for their customers. And when I say their customers, 
I have some very specific people in mind. In the heart of the Champagne region, the great and ancient city of Rouen reigned supreme. Founded by the ancient Romans, Rouen grew into an intellectual and religious hub, and by 1179 they began a funny little local tradition. They began to crown the kings of France. Beginning with Philippe Augustus in 1179, the kings of France traveled to Our Lady of Rouen Cathedral to receive their crown and celebrate, a tradition which continued all the way until Charles X in 1825. For nearly 700 years, Rouen held one of the biggest parties in France, to which every elite person in Europe would travel, by land or by sea, to attend. When they arrived, the elites were confronted with the bounty of champagne. All the dazzling goods brought along the trade routes from Europe, Asia, and Africa were for sale in the markets. All the foods were plentiful and exotic. And the wines? The wines were delicious, refined, and above all, local. While champagne was lucky enough to access the great trade routes of Europe, most of the French nation was lucky to get a dirt track through the fields. As we discussed in our previous series, A Tour de France, the French countryside didn't really build acceptable transportation networks until the 1870s. Until that time, the Bordeaux region was lucky enough to have its waterways to carry her wine to a very thirsty Britain, but there weren't any roads to really carry it to Rouen. Luckily for Champagne, the king and all his guests were a captive audience. They wanted wine, and Champagne's wines were good enough, if not the best, and there were lots of it. From the beginning, when the rich and refined people of Europe gathered together for a party, they drank wine from Champagne. A few centuries later, so would everyone else. By the late 1600s, Europe was well on its way to the Age of Enlightenment, and inventors were making breakthroughs in science and industry that would completely transform the winemaking industry. In 1662, an English scientist named Christopher Merritt discovered a process in which one could add sugar into a still liquid and eventually produce bubbles. The timing was right. England had just developed an insatiable thirst for sparkling hard apple cider, which continues to this day. The English liked their drinks sweet, and they liked them sparkling. If only they could get their hands on sparkling champagne, they'd be the perfect audience. The problem was, it was difficult for England to get its hands on sparkling champagne while the bubbles were still there. In the middle of the 17th century, France saw the arrival of two great men who would shape the future of Champagne, Dom Pierre Perignon and King Louis XIV, the Sun King. One was a humble monk, master of the cellars at the Abbey of Hautevier, while the other was the most spectacular ruler Europe had ever seen. Yet, in their almost simultaneous lifetimes, the two men worked towards a common purpose. Louis loved champagne. He'd first tried it at his own coronation in, you guessed it, Rome. He declared that the wines of champagne were better than those of any region, and where Louis went, so went the world. But secretly, 
not everyone actually agreed with the Sun King. The other winemaking regions of France, like Burgundy, were furious at the attention being given to wines from Champagne, wines that they considered dreadfully inferior and weak. The two regions bickered back and forth until they managed to get the attention of a renowned physician of the age, Jean-Baptiste de Salon, who was asked to give his formal judgment. In front of a packed house at the Paris Faculty of Medicine, Salon pointed out the following. The courts of England, Germany, Denmark, and Italy only drank Burgundy wine. The wines from Champagne were, as he put it, weak, half-hearted, and watery. Their color is changeable and unreliable, and they cannot withstand transport. Finally, he sniffed that the only reason Champagne wines had any attention at all was because two of the king's ministers had their own vineyards in Champagne and wanted to attract business. Take note of these criticisms, because we will hear them again. Though Salons couldn't know it, Dom Perignon was working hard to amend those very faults. There are a lot of stupid myths about Dom Perignon, including the idea that he invented champagne, or that he ran around saying things like, I'm tasting stars. In fact, Dom Perignon was simply a genius winemaker with a knack for understanding how to futz with wine to make it suit the public's tastes. In particular, Dom Perignon perfected the art of blending. In the lands of Burgundy and Bordeaux, wine is grown on vast estates, with large vineyards stretching across acres of territory, producing grapes of similar quality and flavor. Winemakers manage the entire process, from growing the grapes to bottling the finished product. In Champagne, however, Vineyards were divided into tiny plots of land and farmed by growers who sold their grapes to a négociant, or wine merchant. In Champagne, the producers who actually made the wine were not the ones growing the grapes. A batch of wine in Champagne might contain grapes from dozens if not hundreds of different patches of land. Dom Perignon decided that Champagne wine could not take the same approach as all the other wine regions of France. There would be no such thing as a unique, individual vintage based on the output of a particular patch of land in a particular patch of time. There was simply no way to keep track of where all the grapes had come from. Instead, he focused on blending grapes from different patches of land together in the most pleasing way and in growing grapes that would work well in such a system. In the end, he established a few key aims for champagne winemakers. Use the best grapes. Don't grow too many grapes. Harvest your grapes early in the morning. Press your grapes gently and keep your different grape juices separate so they can be blended skillfully together later. In these aims, Dom Perignon succeeded beyond any other wine producer in the Champagne region, and in his skilled hands, the wines of the Abbey of Hautevier grew famous and desirable. There was just one element of winemaking Dom Perignon couldn't perfect. He couldn't get rid of the damn bubbles. Bubbles! The curse of the Champagne winemaker. They were only getting worse. 
The kinds of wines produced in the Champagne region, light-bodied and delicate, tended to go bad quickly once they were exposed to oxygen. This was no big deal for the local tavern, which could run through an entire wooden cask in no time. But private buyers, especially sophisticated customers overseas, wanted their orders to be bottled at the cellar so that the wine would spend as little time as possible being exposed to oxygen. For any winemaker of the early 1600s, this was a tall order, as we discussed in our earlier episode on Bordeaux. Early wine bottles were often misshapen, fragile, and unreliable, and corks were hard to come by. But that was nothing compared to the troubles faced by winemakers in Champagne. The locals began referring to their products as devil's wine for its dangerous, obnoxious, bankrupting tendency to do something that they very much wish it would not do, something that the other wines in other regions did not do, something which was unpredictable and unprofitable. The bottles of wine in the cellars of the Champagne region tended to explode. When the weather warmed up each spring and the yeast inside the flimsy bottles reactivated, the bottles filled with carbon dioxide. It was more than the bottles could take, and the higher the sun rose in the summer, the more likely it was that a trip to the cellar could cost you an eye. Cellar employees began wearing iron masks. If you see a picture of one, they look a bit like a catcher's mask, or the kind that Leo wears and, you guessed it, the man in the iron mask. Even if winemakers were lucky enough to stay healthy, exploding wine could leave them bankrupt. One winemaker writes about how he began the summer with 6,000 bottles of wine, only to end up with 120 by the fall. No wonder makers like Dom Perignon considered bubbles a flaw to be stamped out. One of the most prominent winemakers in the region once received an order for sparkling champagne from no less than D'Artagnan of the King's Musketeers, and he said, Absolutely not. It's an abominable beverage, the winemaker replied. Effervescence belongs to beer. Nevertheless, Europe was beginning to want sparkling champagne for all her parties, and she wanted it in bottles so that it would maintain its fizz. So in cellar after cellar, bottles of grape juice and yeast began waking up in the spring, churning and frothing, often exploding, but sometimes, if everything went right, developing into a light, joyful spritz which could be popped open on demand. Despite all the best efforts of the cellar masters of the area, despite no one understanding at the time just when and why the bubbles kept appearing, local wines insisted on embubbling themselves. As the writer Edward Hyams put it, Champagne invented itself. While Dom Perignon was busy perfecting his wines and Louis XIV was busy drinking them, something curious was happening in the world around them. Europe was getting cold. The 17th and 18th centuries are sometimes called the Little Ice Age, as temperatures plummeted around the earth, hitting Europe particularly hard. Every winter was long, and every winter was cold. Considering how cold and miserable the area is most of the time, it's no surprise that Britain spent the Little Ice Age making advancements into new ways of staying warm. In particular, 
the British began using coal power to get things hot, really hot, much hotter than wood can. New coal firing techniques were useful to a lot of industries, but they were particularly useful to glass blowers. By 1675, British glass blowers perfected the art of producing strong, thick glass that could handle traveling bumpy roads, crossing rough seas, and most importantly, could withstand enormous amounts of pressure. The timing couldn't have been better, as one more summer of donning a catcher's mitt to catch exploding bottles would probably have driven local venters out of their minds. A few more inventions, like the wire cage that twists around the top of the cork, and champagne was ready to meet the world. And the rest of the world was ready to meet champagne. By the beginning of the 1800s, two big moments in French history changed the fate of Champagne in a big way. First, the French Revolution arrived, kicking the cellar-dwelling monks like Dom Perignon out of their abbeys and redistributing the vineyards to local farmers. This meant that the individual patches of land which would be harvested and blended together were getting smaller and smaller and more scattered. A grower might only have two to three patches of grapes, and they might be one acre apiece, scattered across a space of ten miles, growing under totally different conditions. The fall of the great abbeys and the development of thick, new, export-friendly bottles created a power vacuum, and into this vacuum stepped a new character, the négociant. Négociants buy up all the grapes from dozens of farmers' little plots, and it is the négociants, not the growers, who stomp and ferment and blend the grapes together to form the champagne. And just as important, it is the négociants who go out into the world to market their champagne to others. Following the revolution, one of the world's earliest and luckiest négociants found himself with a most unexpected customer. Jean-Rémy Moet's grandfather was an icon in the Champagne world. The old man was one of the first to take advantage of new scientific breakthroughs, which would help Champagne makers produce just enough bubbles for fizz, but not so many that the bottles would explode. By 1750, Jean-Rémy Moet's grandfather produced over 50,000 bottles of sparkling champagne a year, which was extraordinary for the time. His grandfather sold to the rich and fabulous and established the house of Moet as the champagne maker of choice for those in the know. Louis XV adored champagne, and through his influence, the royal courts of Europe followed suit. London... Brussels, Berlin, Vienna, anyone who was anyone was drinking this magical concoction. Russia's thirst for champagne was insatiable. It is said that Peter the Great took four bottles of champagne with him to bed every night, and his daughter was the first to insist that champagne be used for any toast. In order to facilitate the international sales of champagne, Louis XV declared that champagne would no longer be shipped in casks, it could only be shipped in bottles to ensure that it stayed fizzy. After all, as Louis XV wrote, people who like champagne want it to have bubbles. 
somewhere the ghost of Dom Perignon must have been grumbling. When the royals insisted on champagne, they insisted on the house of Moet, and Jean Remy grew up watching his father and grandfather ride off to Versailles to sell their goods to the most important customers in the nation. But in 1792, Jean Remy's father died suddenly, leaving Jean Remy in control of the family business, and the world began to change. It was no longer a good idea to be so closely associated with the rich and royal as the reign of terror swept over revolutionary France. Suddenly, sales began drying up as champagne sellers couldn't get their product out of the country and as the rich and aristocratic clientele fled for their lives. Jean Remy managed to get one shipment out of the country, and it arrived at its destination just in time for a special party. As one senator wrote of the event later, the president and Mrs. Washington served some excellent champagne. During this dark period, Jean Remy made a desperate attempt to expand his customer base by visiting the Royal Military Academy in Brienne, right in the heart of the Champagne region. At the age of 24, Jean Remy carried the bottles of sparkling wine onto the academy grounds and tried to convince the long-suffering faculty to sample it. While the records don't show whether he made any sales that day, Jean Remy did manage to make a new acquaintance. Jean Remy was introduced to a 13-year-old student at the academy, who would soon become a close friend. Jean Remy invited the student to visit the Moet family home in Epernay, and for the next decade, the student would drop by, eventually coming to think of the estate as another home. This friendship would prove particularly useful, because that 13-year-old student would grow up to be, for those of you who haven't guessed it yet, Napoleon Bonaparte. Emperor Napoleon and Empress Josephine loved Moet Champagne, and the rest of their family followed suit. In victory you deserve it, Napoleon is said to have said, and in victory you need it. <clears throat> and in defeat you need it. He and Josephine often stayed on the Moet estate, as did Napoleon's brother, who once ordered 6,000 bottles of champagne in a single order. During the Napoleonic Wars, every invading army passing through would try to get their hands on the local goods. As one of Napoleon's generals huffed, the Prussians are insatiable. You cannot believe the amount of champagne they drink. By 1814, Napoleon's reign was coming to a close, and he stole away to the comfortable walls of the Moet home. He spent one of his final nights before abdication sitting in Jean Remy's kitchen, sipping chicken soup and being gloomy. Within a month, I shall either be dead or dethroned, so I want to reward you now for the admirable way you have built up your business and all you have done for our wines abroad. Napoleon pressed his own legion of honor onto Jean Remy Moet, and the next morning went to meet his fate in Paris. Far from signaling the end of Jean Remy's good fortune, all the conquering European heads of state simply picked up where Napoleon had let off. Tsar Alexander of Russia, Franz II of Austria, King William of Prussia, 
Prince William of Orange and the Duke of Wellington all ended up in the cellars of the Champagne area. As Jean Remy wrote later on, they came back to Champagne because they said they did not have time to taste Champagne while they were busy fighting. They were curious about this new kind of wine that sparkled, so they returned. And by the 1850s, Champagne was king. Champagne's trendiness couldn't have come at a more opportune time. The French railway network was growing like crazy, and at long last, the winemakers of Champagne could expand to a new market, their own countrymen. Finally, it was just as easy to bring a case of bottled Champagne to Brittany as it was to bring it to Britain. Like a cork popping out of a bottle of Dom Perignon, sales shot up out of sight. In only 20 years, Champagne went from producing a few hundred thousand bottles a year to 25 million. Naturally, that meant more winemakers seized the opportunity to make the stuff now that they no longer feared a glass shard to the eye. By 1870, there were over 300 houses producing Champagne, all competing for an ever-expanding market. And the day of the wine salesman was about to dawn. Remember that while the other wine-producing regions of France were dominated by growers who made their own grapes into their own wine, Champagne was, and essentially always has been, a region of merchants, buying up grapes from all over the place, turning them into wine, and then focusing on the key part of the work, the sales. It was at this moment, when the world was finally going crazy for sparkling wine, but had so many options at its disposal, that the wine salesman truly came into his own. Gone were the days of Jean-Rémy Moet, walking on dusty roads with a suitcase of bottles clinking under his arm, hoping to find a thirsty professor or two. These were the Don Drapers of the 1870s. As one observer at the time wrote, the traveler of a wine house must not only have a strong head, but a bold face, a voluble tongue, and an indiscriminate and inexhaustible sociability. He must never confess to a headache. He must be at home in every company, must always have a story to tell, never let the talk flag for a moment, and clink glasses miscellaneously with all the world. The world's greatest champagne houses turned their wine salesmen into spies, ferreting out which new markets might be ripe for expansion, which prominent customers might be growing tired of a particular brand of champagne, which opportunities might call for a big, expensive toast. The wine salesman for Veuve Clicquot drew attention for his close personal relationships with the Russian court, but it was all about the bottom line. As he cabled back to his employer one day, the Tsarina is pregnant. What a blessing for us if she were to have a prince. In this immense country, torrents of champagne would flow. Don't breathe a word about this in Rouen. All our competitors would want to rush north. Famous champagne salesmen traveled all around the world, even the Wild West. I particularly appreciated the gentleman who shipped a railroad car of champagne out to San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. Thank you. 
Empress Josephine was the one who declared that champagne was the only appropriate drink for a toast back in Napoleon's day. By the 20th century, almost any kind of celebration basically required the presence of champagne. We used to christen ships with brandy, whiskey, local river water, basically any liquid that was handy, but eventually they all gave way to champagne. The madmen of champagne were doing their job well, and they were becoming celebrities in their own right. The more noise made about me, wrote one infamous salesman of the time, the easier it will be to sell my champagne. The trouble was, as the champagne salesmen grew better and better, the champagne they sold grew worse and worse. There were little to no regulations on the fizzy wines of the era. It could come from wherever, be made of whatever, and be named after whoever you like. Guests were dropping serious bank on completely fraudulent wines. You were lucky if the only adulterated ingredient in your glass was beet juice. It could have been worse. Such fraud threatened the stability of the industry. Already, certain aristocrats began warning one another to avoid champagne, because who knew what was in it? But you couldn't blame folks for trying. As one critic sniffed at the end of the 19th century, a brand of champagne once extensively made known, whether by legitimate interest, hazard, or charlatanism, becomes a sure source of wealth. At one point, the greatest houses of champagne began figuring out systems of labeling so that consumers could make sure they were getting the right stuff and the best stuff. But as for the best stuff, even the tasting notes that we associate with champagne today, toasty, buttery, fruity, actually have more to do with the special ingredient which is added by most commercial champagne manufacturers extra sugar. Sugar is a critical ingredient for most commercial champagne, and legally, champagne producers are allowed to add sugar at three separate points of the fermentation process. As early as the 19th century, wine enthusiasts with a sharp palate were noticing the similarities among all of the so-called prestige brands of champagne. Veuve Clicquot, according to one of them, is entirely smothered in the sweetness. It never varies its wine to suit varying tastes. A bottle of Clicquot in America is the same as a bottle of Clicquot in Russia or elsewhere. Of Roderer, he wrote, they are indebted for their success to the usual means employed by charlatans to create a demand. Like all those adapted to general consumption, it is loaded with sugar that it may be toothsome to the masses. And so on and so on. Nevertheless, sweet as they were, at least those champagnes didn't have any apple juice in them. Eventually, whether by high quality and good craftsmanship, or by price points and good salesmanship, the négociants of champagne began to distinguish the best houses from the rest. They patted themselves on the back for their benevolent concern for the palate of the world's champagne drinkers. We are all brothers, said one cellar master from a prestigious house, and our wines are brothers too. Our real enemies are those who make fake champagne and believe that money is the most important thing. And yet, what else is the story of champagne but a story of money? Champagne is the drink of money. 
It is the emblem of money. It is the preferred choice of those who have money. And most importantly, it would not exist if not for money. I mean, bubbles and wine would exist. Remember Hiram's maxim that champagne invented itself. But were it not for money, cellar masters to this day would be stomping their feet like Dom Perignon, trying to keep the fizz out of their devil's wine. Sparkling champagne was not a traditional foodstuff or a regional delicacy which slowly gained exposure to the rest of the world. In fact, probably the first community to truly savor the craft of sparkling champagne were the British. Sparkling champagne is not the result of thousands of years of dedicated craftsmanship. It's more like a little over 200 years of good marketing, plus a few critical experiments along the way. Champagne is, and always has been, a drink which the middle class and the rich drink because the ultra-rich and the nobles drink it too. When the king lifts his champagne flute, you lift yours. As for the taste, well, if Burgundy is producing the equivalent of a slice of Roquefort cheese, unique, subtle, ever-changing, full of terroir, Champagne is producing the equivalent of Kraft Singles, simple, crowd-pleasing, and consistent rather than interesting. I don't say all of this to make you feel sad about Champagne. First, such a thing would be impossible. Second. I love champagne as much as anybody. That's why I spend so much time in my local champagne bar. But the story of champagne is so bloated, so overstuffed with fake legends and myths and overblown marketing copy, that I wanted to take a little fizz out of the industry's glass, so to speak. Champagne is usually expensive, and everyone will always be nagging you to make sure you're actually drinking quote-unquote real champagne instead of sparkling wine. But here's the truth. There's very little about quote-unquote real champagne, which is altogether unique. Sparkling champagne likes to claim a seat in the same corner of the wine cellar as all the other truly great French wines. But there's no 5,000-year tradition here. There's no unbroken line of constant agricultural refinement and perfection. If there's such a thing as terroir, most champagne doesn't have it. And you know what? That's okay. Champagne is that most modern of drinks. It is a mass market product, which has been perfected not in the soil, but in the factory. And it is now perfectly honed to march straight to the pleasure centers of your brain. Champagne is easy to find. Champagne is easy to drink. Champagne is great for parties. Champagne is the Britney Spears of wine. Well, I've got news for you. Britney Spears is great. So buy a bottle of sparkling wine and don't worry about where it came from or whether you got the right kind. Instead, let's just relax, raise a glass, and salut! Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Tomorrow, I'm organizing a champagne tasting at work for our wine club, where we'll do a blind taste test of sparkling wine, Prosecco, and champagne 
to see whether any of us are sophisticated enough to tell the difference. If any of you are looking for an excuse, please take a picture of yourself raising a glass of bubbly and post it on the show's Facebook page. As always, thanks to everyone who's written me an email, commented on the Facebook page or on Twitter, and especially those who have made a contribution on Patreon. The third anniversary of this show means my bills are coming due, so thank you especially to those of you helping me to make this show a sustainable hobby. Now, if you'll all excuse me, I'm off to celebrate. So until next time, au revoir!